In Malachi 3, verse 13, we've gotten to a point in the book, we're almost finished, and this really concludes the final section. In fact, if you looked in Malachi, you would, in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, chapter 3 and 4 would basically be combined. There's no chapter 4. So this kind of concludes the, starts the conclusion of the end of Malachi. But we're only going to go through verse 18 today and think about this thought. Is it worthless to serve God? You may have thought, or you may have never thought this, that it's worthless to serve God. But you may have had thought, may have had questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the righteous suffer? Why is it that those who seem to fear the Lord and worship Him go through some of the worst or hardest trials? Why, why does it seem like the wicked are winning? Why does it seem like the wicked flourish? And those that follow the Lord, they don't. You may have those questions. You may even have those frustrations. And even as a pastor, sometimes I have those same questions. Is it worth it to serve God? And there gets points of frustration and you're down. You may think I'm immune to that or a pastor should be immune to that. Or you should always think it's wonderful and worthwhile. But yet, probably if you're a real person living a real life, you'll realize sometimes it's difficult and life is hard. We're going to look at this truth today. Your current condition is not an accurate indicator of your future reality. The wicked are living their best life now, but for those who fear the Lord, the best is yet to come. You may have thought it seems worthless to serve God. And that is the same thought people had wrongly in Malachi. Let's look at this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Malachi 3.13 says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And so this is a dialogue between the people. And the Lord is saying this to the people, saying, Your words, people, have been hard against me, the Lord. So the Lord saying this, But you say, How have we spoken against you? That's the people asking that question. How have we spoken against you? And you've said, this is what the people said, It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord? And now we call the arrogant blessed evil doers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day which I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Right now, sometimes it doesn't seem worth it to serve God. Right now, in the first three verses or first verses, 13, 14 and 15, you you get that feeling and people are asking this. It doesn't seem worth it to serve God. God saying to them. Your words, people, that you've said against me have been very difficult. What you've said is actually that it's not worth it to serve God. If you remember, the Lord is there with all these accusations. The people say the people had said, God, if you remember throughout this book, God, you don't love us. They said it's vain to serve you. And they also said we don't honor you in your marriage. If you remember, they didn't give in their worship. And they expected God to bless them just because they were the people of Israel. But God returns saying that these words have been difficult, saying that your heart has been hard. And so the first point we see is that right now it seems 
worthless or it doesn't seem worth it to serve the Lord. The people wanted to see immediate results. The unbelieving Israelites who are speaking to God, these are unbelievers. They're people of Israel, but they're not actually ones that trusted the Lord. They assumed that it's worthless to serve God. They, they thought that maybe if they just were his people, that they should get great blessing. They thought that they didn't that they didn't have any need to repent of their sins. They said, why is it, as it says in those in verse four, what is it? Why would we even walk in mourning or repenting of of their sins with with ashes around them saying we repent of our sins? They would say, why would we do that? These people were expecting an immediate payoff. They were looking for rewards or benefits. They thought because they were part of the congregation of Israel that God owed them something because of their presence. They probably, and they were not, I don't believe at all, that they were believers. They were actually false worshipers of God, just assuming that they should have the blessing of God. And they said, what's in it for us? Have you ever thought that with the Lord? What's in it for me, God? When are you going to bless me? What's in it for me now? These people's heart were against God. Their actions were against God. If you remember, they brought lame and evil or wrong sacrifices. They had terrible marriages, marrying foreign gods. They didn't love God, but yet they assumed that they should have immediate blessing. They even sometimes walked around acting like they were repentant, just hoping God would give them something. You know, sometimes they even, as it talks about in this book, they even walked around mourning and crying and acting like, God, you should give us blessing. But it was fake repentance. And you've seen this before. This shouldn't surprise us that it happened in the children of Israel. We've seen this in our day. People will cry, make them an emotional appeal, try and have a big change or their heart. Trying, trying to make a show for other people to see how repentant they are, but yet their heart is still hard against God. Tears don't necessarily equal repentance. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 says this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you were suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. These people in Israel had this had this false grief. They didn't really care about their sins. What they cared about was God's blessing. They said, God, it's not worth it to serve you. And it's very similar to what was going on in Second Corinthians that Paul talks about that some people would act like they would have grief. They would even come to tears. But they truly didn't repent and mourn over their sin. True, genuine grief over sin will repent, will produce repentance. An outburst of emotions may or may not be genuine repentance. Repentance is often seen in a heart that is changed and turned towards God and serving Him. A person, and this is happens as wonderful as camp is, this happens almost every time somebody goes to camp, there will be a very emotional appeal or a change because we're away from everything and we turn. But yet that results in no actions towards serving and obeying God. True, genuine grief will, will over sin will re produce repentance followed by obedience. But these unbelieving Israelites 
they assume that their rituals, their performance, their actions, walking the walk and talking the talk, but not really having a heart in it, just looking good. They assumed that that would be enough. Fake repentance and works will not save you. True, genuine faith and repentance in Christ's works will save you. You may be here today and you say, well, maybe if I come to the altar and cry, that'll help. I mean, that's what they did in, here in Malachi. They said, what's the worth walking around in ashes? Maybe you think that maybe just an action or trying to submit for a moment will change your heart. But true, genuine salvation is believing in Christ, having faith in him, repenting of your sins genuinely in your heart and turning to him. Repentance is a turn to Christ away from sin. Just because somebody cries over their repentance doesn't mean that they've truly or cries over what's happened doesn't mean they truly repented. True repentance is seen over a lifetime. These Israelites assumed that their life as part of the covenant people of Israel, they assumed that they should be good. And that's sometimes what we do. We assume that just because we're part, we come to this church because we're part of this people, we're good. True, genuine relationship with Christ means we repent to him and we follow him. And these evil, wicked Israelites, they saw this and they said, God, we think that the wicked prosper and they don't have any consequence. You know, people that are evil are prospering and they have zero consequences, it says in verse 15 and 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. If you think back in Malachi, in Malachi verse three, chapter three, verse ten, it says this: God told them to put them to the test. It says, "Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test." Says the Lord of hosts, "If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need." And the people, these people of Israel that didn't truly honor God, they're saying this. They're saying, God, they put you to the test. These evildoers put you to the test and you're not judging them. You're not following through. These unbelievers are now accusing God and saying, God, they put you to the test and nothing's happening. You let the unbelievers prosper. They said you failed, God. It's not worth it to serve you because you let the evil prosper. And those that are righteous suffer. And there's an accusation. God, you failed. Sometimes in our hearts, we accuse God of the same thing. God, you failed me. I mean, I'm a believer and my life should be easier than it is. But you failed me. And that is a wrong accusation. And it's an assumption that says, I know what I deserve and what's best for me. And God, you're not giving that to me. And it's assumption, an assumption that these evil, wicked Israelites had in their heart. They blamed everything on God. You know, nobody likes to be blamed falsely. Nobody likes a false accusation, especially my dogs. My infamous dogs, Star and Tex, they're usually pretty good dogs, but sometimes they like to do bad dog stuff and they go and chew up a bag of food in the pantry or they eat something that they shouldn't or chew up some toy that's not supposed to be chewed up. And generally, 
I can assume it's probably Tex because he's the wild and crazy and insane dog, right? But when you hold that thing that they ate in your hands and you look at them, I'm certain I can tell which one did it because one of them is going to look guiltier than the other. And for sure, if it's Star, she's going to get really guilty, go to her kennel and sit there with her you know, head down and her tail between her legs. The other dog could get blamed for it. And nobody likes getting the false blame, especially the dogs. Just imagine, though, God's here hearing that God is in this situation, hearing these people blame him for all their problems. It's one thing to falsely blame a person or my dogs. It's one thing to make an accident that way. It is a totally different thing. When we assign God the blame to every problem in our life or we start to accuse God and say, God, you haven't given me what I deserve. I blame you for my childhood. God, you gave me a terrible job. My family has miserable problems. I'm frustrated with my spouse. It's your fault to God. Yet we don't think that we might be the source of the problems because we have unresolved bitterness, pride, hate. Extreme selfishness. We're the cause of our own problems oftentimes because of sin. Yet we often, sometimes quietly, sometimes just in our mind, we blame God and we accuse him of mistreatment. If you're blaming God for all your problems and thinking my life is miserable, it may not even come out saying, God, you're the reason. It may simply come out as complaints about everything else. You see in this passage They don't they blamed God and said, is is it worth serving you, God? And they actually complain, saying, look, all those that do evil prosper. They're getting better things than I am. Sometimes we don't blame God and just say, God, you're it's your fault. We actually blame God by complaining. We say, I don't have it good enough. I wish I had better. And the constant complaint shows that we don't trust God and believe him for who he is and that he knows best. Sometimes we have a different mentality, though, too. We live with a martyr or victim mentality. Sometimes we complain that our life is terrible and we say everything's miserable. Look how bad this world is. Yet we sit in our house with the AC set between 70 and 75. We order food from our app. Somebody delivers it to it. We watch everything on our 50 inch TV or bigger sitting in our nice recliner watching the news, telling us how bad our country is or how bad the world is. And we sit here thinking all is lost. There's no hope. Woe is me. I'm living in the worst time ever, forgetting that there were Christians before us that burned at the stake for their faith. Forgetting that we probably live in the most luxurious free time of the world. And we have a victim mentality. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why is this world so bad? And yet nothing in our life really could be considered bad. We just make an assumption. God, you're the evil one. And our hearts become wicked and evil. And our constant voice is complaining about everything in our life. That shows a wicked heart, just like these unbelieving Israelites. Let me encourage you, turn turn off the news for a week. Spend some time with an unbeliever. Share Christ with them. Pray with your church family and for the unsaved. Swap your apathy towards God with your passion for politics. You may say, I don't really get enjoyment out of God, but I love politics. 
Turn it off. Go to God. Become passionate about Christ instead of the little details that are going on in this world. Your current condition is not an indicator of your future reality. The wicked may be living their best lives now, but those that fear the Lord, the best is yet to come. Don't let your life be filled filled with a constant complaint about how bad it is. Think about how good God is to you. Be like these people in verse 16. In verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son and who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You may have felt that it's not worth serving God now. You may have felt that it's vain to serve him and you're not getting the rewards that you think you deserve. But let me tell you, fear God now. Respect and honor him. He will make it worth it in the future. You should fear and esteem the name of the Lord. Now, let me just mention this book of remembrance. It says there that they were writ- their name was written in a book of remembrance. We understand this, that, I mean, God, as all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, God doesn't necessarily need a book to remember everything. If you think about it, or if you probably have an app that you put reminders in, or you have a little notebook, you, you write things down because you forget. God will not forget. But we see very clearly in Scripture that there's this book of life, as mentioned in Exodus 32 and in Revelation 20 and 21. There's also a book or the book called uh, talked about in Daniel 12. And in Psalm, it talks about a heavenly record. God keeps a record and knows what we have done. And God remembers those that fear him and their righteous deeds. Think about what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We think about Isaiah 43.25. I I am he who blots out your transgression for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's interesting, and this could be a whole side topic, but I believe that God remembers and records those that fear him and their deeds. Those that are believers, are it's recorded, and God will reward those that fear and esteem his name. But God will also not forget those that turn against him and run from him. God will judge those that are evil. And if you don't trust in Christ as your Savior, you will be the ones that face judgment. But if you submit to Him, repent of your sins and trust in Him, He will put you down in His book of life. He will remember you. What better thing than being remembered by God when we see when we face the end of our life? He writes down people and he says, what about these people that were written in this book of remembrance? He writes down the people that one, they feared the Lord and two, they esteemed his name. Fearing God is having a healthy respect for him. Now, sometimes we think of fear as a bad thing. We're scared or we think of it as something evil. But fear has sometimes been thought of something as as a healthy respect 
You know, I enjoyed driving a scooter or a little motorcycle thing in Taiwan when we lived there. There's and this idea of a healthy fear is good. I liked driving that little thing, but it still could go pretty fast. And so you had to respect it. You had to understand if I, you know, pull the handlebar all the way down, I may not it may not seem that powerful, but all of a sudden you're going very quick, very fast with literally millions of other people on the road. You so you need to have a healthy fear for it. You have a respect. I enjoy this. It's a great mode of transportation, but there's a healthy respect and fear for it. And with God, we should understand God is the creator of all things. The sovereign one over the universe who has power over death, over heaven and hell. We also have a healthy love and respect for him, knowing that he gave his son for us, that he gave his life so that we can have life. And so we fear him in a way that respects and honors his name. And the person they fear, these people feared God and they esteemed his name or they thought highly of him and regarded God and gave him his proper due. They knew that God was they were accurate about what they thought about God. They knew God was loving, respecting, reverence. They reverenced God. But they also knew God and his judgment was true. And they respected the name of God. They esteemed his name. Now, if you remember in Malachi, the name of God is critically important. Look at these verses with me. Malachi 1.6 says this about God's name. Malachi 1.6 says this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. And so, so he's been, he accused them long ago in this book. You didn't fear me. But yet these people that we're talking about, this remnant fears God. So keep looking in Malachi verse six there says, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And if you remember, they offered bad offerings. They took the lamb that was blind, that was lame. They took the sacrifices that were terrible and they brought that to God and said, here's our good offerings, God. It was through their obedience or actual disobedience that they showed that they disrespected God's name. Malachi 1.11 says this in a critical verse to understand how God thinks about him and his name. Verse Malachi 1.11 says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so these people, this remnant, they were rewarded for fearing God and esteeming his name. Instead of dishonoring God's name, they esteemed it and lifted it up. They weren't afraid of it. They weren't ashamed of it. They didn't run from the name of God. They honored it. Your name, your own name is very important. The name of a person has a lot with it to go with it. If I said anybody's name that you knew immediately, you wouldn't just think of the name and its spelling. You would think about that person and their characteristics, who they are, what they mean to you. If I said the name Michael Jordan, you would probably think of the basketball player from the Bulls and you would not just think how it's spelled on the back of a jersey, but you would think about six championships, never lost in the finals, Whatever his scoring average is, maybe you maybe you were a 
Utah Jazz fan or something and you hate Jordan because he beat your team, whatever it is, you hear that name and you think something about it. When your name is said, what do people think about that person behind that name? And this is what God is saying here. You honor and esteem my name, my nature, my character, my attributes, my glory, my power, my wisdom, my love, mercy, righteousness, goodness, eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, infinity, and so on. When we say we love and honor and fear God, we can't make up a God in our mind. We have to fear and honor the God of the Bible. We have to fear and honor the God of his word. So the implication is that true believers value God as their prized possession. And not only does they, do believers value God as their prized possession, God is valuing his believers as his treasured possession. This is incredible that God thinks of us in this way. It says in verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. What's most important to you? If I said, hey, what if the house was burning down, what would you grab out of it? Would it be, you know, your, you know, baseball that you hit a home run, run with in junior high and you will got to save that thing? Would it be some heirloom? A picture, your laptop, that one paper that has all your passwords that's written down so nobody will find it. Many of us would say, I would make sure that I had my kids or my spouse or my grandchildren. I would, I would say, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't say I own them, but they're definitely my most treasured possession. And this is what God says about his people. He says, in that day, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them. We are part of God's treasured possession. Think about our God, Yahweh, the God of creation, the Lord of everything. What would he say is his greatest possession? What would he say is the most wonderful thing he made? This earth or the universe or all the stars in it. Think about all the wonderful things God made. Yet he says, those that fear my name and esteem me, those are my treasured possession. I'm going to spare them as I spare, as a father spares his son. So we know that if you're a true believer of God, if you're one that fears him and trusts him, why do, what do I have to fear about this world? As bad as it may get, as bad as my life may get, I am God's treasured possession. So our security is not resting on us, but it is resting on the fact that God treasures us. First Peter two nine says something like this. It may sound very familiar, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God will spare his treasured possession. And so if your life seems miserable now and you think everything that's going on is terrible Keep fearing God. Keep esteeming his name. He will spare you and he will treasure you as his possession. 
And the difference of the righteous and wicked will be seen. It says in verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And if we went on to chapter four today, we would we would see how God elaborates on this and makes it very clear that those who treasure God are going to be treasured, treasured by him in the future. That actually God is going to bring judgment and it's going to be terrible for those that are against him. So that, as it says in verse 17, God spares his son. I don't know if you grew up in a family like mine. Probably not. I had three brothers. And uh, so the four of us boys often got into a lot of trouble. And when uh, there was something that happened, I would often hope that I wasn't the guilty party. Generally, it was Ryan. And so I was assuming if my dad came home and something was not done and it wasn't my responsibility, I was sure hopeful that the punishment would go on him and I would be spared. All of us like to be spared the punishment. But in a way more serious note, God will spare those that esteem his name, that fear him, that are his children. But if you're not a child of God, you will not be spared. Your eternal destiny rests on what you do with God and his son. Do you value Christ enough to say, God, you are my God and my Lord, and I repent of my sins and ask to follow, follow you? Or are you thinking, you owe me, God. I deserve more. And maybe one day I'll repent. We live in a world that is consumed with consumerism, instant gratification. Have it your way right now. And that's how we sometimes want to follow Jesus. Jesus, show me that it's worth it now. Show me that it's worth it today. And often I'm the same way. I mean, I sometimes wish results were just like my popcorn. Two minutes later, I get the bag of popcorn and get to enjoy it. But sometimes following God isn't like instant popcorn. Sometimes following God is a lifelong race that we follow him and esteem his name. And it sometimes is going to be difficult. There are prosperity gospels out here today that will say your best life can be lived right now. If you don't have what you want, go get it and have faith. God will give it to you. And yet I see believers, even in our own congregation, that deal with a job loss, with the loss of a friend, a family member, a spouse. They deal with some very difficult trials in life. They lose their health at a time that you don't think they should. You see children that may struggle with severe autism or some kind of other thing that you think, why should they have to deal with that? People dealing and caring for aging loved ones, family members battling through sickness, seeing people pass away, even seeing people that we train for the Lord turning away from him. And sometimes it's easy for me to think, is it worth serving God? But God resoundingly comes back and says, it is worth it. You may not see it right now. It may not happen today. It may not seem like it's worth it even next week. In fact, life may be difficult, but it will be worth it all. Your current condition is not an indicator of your future reality. If you are a child of God, you will spend eternity with him as his treasured possession. The wicked are living their best life. This is as good as it gets, as Pastor often has said. This is as good as it gets for many people. 
But for those of us that fear the Lord and esteem his name, it may be difficult here, but the best is yet to come. God will bring us to glory one day and we will be his treasured possession. And so live today for his glory, for his name's sake, esteem his name and use your life to make Jesus, our heavenly father, make him famous and not us. And at the end of our life, we'll hear the words, well done. Let's pray. Lord, it is sometimes really difficult to follow you because we want instant results. Lord, it is sometimes hard because we are used to getting our own way oftentimes and and getting it quickly. And Lord, we sometimes even see what goes on in the world and around us and we get to that attitude and think, woe is me and feel so down. But Lord, I pray that you would put steel in our hearts and encourage us with these words that we will be your treasured possession and that we will be with you in glory, that those that fear his name and esteem him will be honored. Lord, encourage us. Help us to realize that the battles that we face today and the difficulties that we go through, it will be worth it when we stand with you in glory. We won't even think anything of it. We'll realize that it was totally worth it to be with you. Lord, there's probably some here today that have not trusted you as their Savior. And I ask, Lord, that you would please help them to see their need to trust Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would help them to repent of their sins and to turn to you in true repentance and true obedience, that they would fear your name. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege it's even it is to be called your treasured possession, that you will treasure us. But Lord, help us today to treasure you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.